Hello, welcome to James's pre-fight, post-fight MMA show, where we recap all the important things happening in the sport of MMA, and I, your host James, try to explain to you what's going on in the sport and make it as easy as one, two, three for you to understand. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. James here. We're here to talk UFC 267. I'm talking so fast because this card is stacked and we have a lot to get down to. A lot has happened for the MMA landscape that created this card. A lot of storylines, a lot of great fights happening. So that's why if I'm, it seems like I'm trying to rush the intro right here. That is why, because we got a lot of details to go into. So the first fight on the card... So, first of all, before I get into the fights that I highlighted for... That could bring the appeal for perhaps somebody who doesn't watch the UFC every week. And, you know, the people who are hardcores and they just want to get down to talking about fights. I'm just going to highlight some fights that I believe that are going to be very good. Uh, we... So this card, this uh, really proves how stacked the card is. Like we have um, Amanda Hibas fighting on the card. We have Le- we have uh, Magomed Ankalaev, who is very very good. He's from Dagestan, but he trains out in Las Vegas at Stream Couture. Excellent striking, very composed um, fighter. Like you never see him panic or anything. He only has one loss in the UFC that came in his UFC debut against Paul Craig. So he'll be fighting. Former UFC title challenger Volkan Ustamir. Great fight. Really a old school versus new school type of fight. Ustamir coming off his knockout loss against Yuri Pahadishna. Magomed Ankalaev. I believe he's coming off of his decision to win home for Nikita Krylov. So, and Magomed, a lot of people have talked about talked about him so highly. So he's going to really have to try to take the fight. I mean... It's going to be interesting to see how Ustamir tackles him because Ankalaev is very well-rounded everywhere. And if the striking is close, which Ustamir does have good striking, and then Magomed has very, very agile and quick. Uh, Magomed has that second gear to go to, to his wrestling. So, amazing fight. That's a fight I've highlighted for him. That's going to be very good. That I feel like a lot of people aren't talking about. Marcin Tyborov is Alexander Volkov. Volkov coming off his gun- loss against Cyril Gan. Marcin Tyborov coming off of his um, TKO win over Greg Hardy. Going to be an amazing fight. Tyborov always kind of been a little bit of the gatekeeper. If he wins this fight against Volkov, he could really push through. And Volkov always put in seriously good work. Um, knocked out Overeem. Uh, knocked out Walt Harris. But every time he kind of reaches that... um. That big time fight where he could get a, a possible title shot, he loses. He lost to Derek Lewis in the last second of their fight. He lost to um no, he got knocked out. Then he lost to Cyril Gon recently in his last fight where maybe if he won he would have uh, gotten an interim title shot or a title shot. So that's gonna be an amazing fight. A fight between Volkov, former belt champion, really good striker, good jujitsu, and a marching Tybora has really good kicks, really good uh, submission game himself. So it's going to be very... This card, that's not even beginning to be what the top of the card is. So the first big fight we have is Lee Jingliang versus Hamza Chamayev. 
Hamza Chemaev, we have broken him down before last year in September when Kobe Covington fought Tyron Woodley on that card. Hamzat was fighting Gerald Mishart. You know, just to make, get the basic gist of it, I'm not going to go too much into detail with his um, story of how people like him, but he, he was on Fight Island, UFC 251, and then I believe two weeks later, he subbed in to fight Reese McKee, where he won, um, I believe it was in the first round. For, yeah, the first round. And uh, he also stopped in his debut. He beat the guy in the first round as well, both of them using his wrestling uh, he, he's um a very big welterweight, in fact. But I'll get into that later. So first, we're gonna go into Li Jingliang. He's a huge underdog. He's the number eleven guy in the world. He's eighteen six. He has he's thirty three years old. He comes from China, top team. He's from Taiching, China. He has nine knockout wins, four sub wins, and he's only had one thing to point out is he's only had one submission loss, and he has a seventy one inch reach. Hamza Chemayev, he is 9-0. So there is a significant experience uh, difference between the two. He is 27 years old, so he's much younger than Lee Jing Leong. He changed out all-star MMA in Sweden, but he uh, he's from Chechnya. So he trains with guys in Sweden, all-star. He trains with like guys like Jimmy Manawa, Elio Latifi, Alexander Gustafsson. And he's had plenty of... There's plenty of footage of him training with them. He's a three-time... Swedish national champ. And uh, he's 6 feet tall. 6'2". And he has a 75 inch reach. It's kind of hard to point out the dynamics of this fight. Because if we go by what we've seen from Lee Jing Leong. He, he has good knockout power. Because he knocked the Jeremy Sharp. So we just take it from the surface. From how we see it. right? He has good knockout power. His wrestling. right? He comes from a... Very deep wrestling background. You know, he always talks, well, he just won't do smash. just won't do smash. Things like that. He's already talked about a big game. Talking about how he wants to fight Usman. How he wants to fight Adesanya. Fight in both weight classes. He's fought at middleweight, his UFC debut. He fought at Walter Wade, the next fight. And uh, his fight against Jeremy Charles, middleweight. And he was set up to fight Leon Edwards three times. But then Leon, uh, Chamayev got COVID. No, Leon got COVID. Then Chamayev got COVID. Then Chamayev couldn't recover. So he um, he he has like a very deep story for a guy who has only three fights in the UFC. Legion Leon has struggled with guys who will take him down. Like his two big losses that come to mind is the Neil Magny loss. But basically, Magny was just beating him up in the clinch, taking him down, just out grappling him. So you would think, oh, Hamza Chemaev comes from this deep grappling background. And Neil Magny, even though a very well-rounded fighter, is not known as being a grappler. Chemaev should be able to beat him. That's the thought process. Then we have... Um, so And also, Lee Jing Leung lost to uh, Jake Matthews, who just kept taking him down, getting him submissions, things like that. So, and also, um, like, Jing Leong, he's not known for, um, like, having good takedown defense, 59%, which is okay, but also he's not known for having some kind of, like, amazing guard or anything, or he's very good off submitting people off his back or very good at getting up. So, really, on the surface, the favorite Hamza Chemaev, you know, the favorite should be Hamza Chemaev. 
on the surface, right? But then let's look at the things, right? Like, the guy, uh, let me see, Hamza Chemaev, his first UFC fight was against John Phillips, who's known as being more of like a brawler. He submitted him with a dart choke in the second round. And we all knew if Chemaev gets him down, then yeah, nothing's going to really change, right? Like, Phillips has never shown a good ability to, like, a good ability to protect himself on the ground and get up on the ground. So then we're moving on. Reese McKee, right? He stops him with punches in the first round. Reese McKee, that was his UFC debut. And Reese McKee is only, he's a, really, he fights a lightweight, not a welterweight. And then we get into Gerald Mishar. So he knocks out Mishar with, like, four punches. He hits him with four one big punch and he knocks him out. But Mirshar, if you actually look at it, this fight took place September of 2020. And then his fight against Ian Heinisch took place two months before on June 6th. And he got knocked out bad in that fight. So it's hard to believe that uh, that you know Mirshar was going to come in fully ready to take, like his health-wise, to take a big shot from a guy like Chemayev. But you got to give Chamayev credit that he took advantage of it. And also, like, Chamayev, all his amateur fights, all his fights in the regional scene, he's shown, like, good footwork, good mixing up of takedowns, things like that. Uh, and he's athletic. He seems to be very fast. He's huge for Walter Wade. But the thing is that I'm questioning is that Lee Jin Leong, he has a very good chin. So I do feel like it's going to be unlikely that Chemayev knocks him out standing with a, like a big shot. Uh, kind of like the Jared Mishar fight. And he's also... and um, But I do think that Chemayev... I don't think he's going to be able to submit Li Jingliang. You know, it's always possible. You never know. But I do think he's going to be able to TKO him on the ground. For me, I think that... He's just going to have to, um, if I'm Li Jingliang, I just come out like uh, big punches and I try to faint and try to get Chamayev to make a mistake or I just try to extend the fight. So I try to extend like five, like three minutes of where Chamayev has had no success at all in this fight because the guy has never fought past the second round. And, of course, Li Jinglong has so many fights. So, he has gone past the second round plenty of times. Also, he he had, like, his COVID case was so bad that he thought that he was going to retire and, you know, possibly change his health for life. So, I think that's something to look at. And Li Jinglong was a plus 425 underdog. And you're, you got a guy who's 18-6 and six in Jinglong versus a guy who's 9-0 and in Chamayev. Hasn't fought since last year. Li Jingyong had a big knockout win over Santiago Ponzinibbio in the beginning of this year. And um, also, Jingyong, he doesn't have to, unlike some other fighters at Walterweight, where you have to win minute by minute because a lot of those guys rely more on technique or wrestling or oppositioning somebody. Jingyong doesn't have to do that. He has very good power. And he also has awkward movement. I think that may throw off Chemayev, especially since... He's not very experienced, right? Like, you get fighters who are at the top and they've seen a lot of very good strikers, strikers who do everything very well, and, you know, the guys who are experienced can read them. But then, Li Jingliang, like, he has the most awkward movement ever. So, I think it's gonna... It's a fascinating fight, 
But if I had to pick who's going to win in a bet, they're two separate things in this case. And you're going to see that a lot with me in this this card, to be honest. Like, Chemayev, um I expect him to just be, like, throwing big punches. And he, one time, like, he throws, like, a big kick or a big punch. And then he ducks under and gets a takedown on Li Jing Leong. But I do think that um, Jing Leong, like, plus 425, it's awfully... Like, that's a big disrespect to him. You know, he could turn off the lights. And, um, like, I just think the awkwardness. And I don't think, like, Jing Leong is very hard to discourage in a fight. Extremely hard. Like, I don't think if Chamai is beating him up round one and two, I think Jing Leong, as long as he doesn't get TKO'd on the ground, he could still keep moving. I think he's got a really good chance of winning. It's going to be fascinating, to be honest. Uh, Chamai was, like, a huge prospect last year. And I, if I had to pick, I would pick Hamza Chamaya via decision because we've seen people out grapple Li Jing Leong plenty of times. But if I had to go for bet plus four twenty five, Li Jing Leong is just way too hard to pass, in my opinion. So this fight, another fight with great storylines: Islam Makashev versus Dan Hooker. Makashev comes out of Dagestan, trains at AKA American Kickboxing Academy with Daniel Cormier and Habib. He's he's kind of looked at amongst MMA fans as being, oh, he's Habib's prodigy. He always used to corner Habib in his big fights, things like that. And, you know, they're similar, like the takedowns are similar, the controls slightly similar, but Habib definitely has a lot bigger and grounded pounds more often than Islam Makashev. Makashev... I think is a little bit better with the submissions. He's definitely a better striker than Habib by far. He does takedowns from the center of the octagon, opposed to Habib, who always does them against the fence. And he's a really bright fighter, in my opinion. I think he has the possibilities of maybe exceeding Habib. I think overall, well-roundedness he does. He's definitely a better striker than him. Ground and pound is not as devastating, but... Uh, I do, and Makachev has also lost before. He's, he was TKO by Andrean Martins back in 2016, I believe. So he doesn't have that undefeated record, but still 20 and one, very good. He's 5'10", 29 years old, very young, 70 inch reach. He's a South primary fights in a lefty stance. He trains out Eagles MMA, but he also trains at American Kickboxing Academy, and here um, in America in San Jose, California. Dan Hook, so Islam Makhachev is the number five ranked lightweight, and then Dan Hooker is the number six ranked lightweight. Uh, we've broken him down, I believe, twice in this show. On the show, he's six feet tall, with a seventy-five inch reach. He's from fights out city kickboxing in Auckland, New Zealand. He also used to train out of Tiger Muay Thai. He's twenty-one and ten, so there's a big difference in the record, but there's also a big difference in competition. Like Makhachev is ranked number five in the world. But he beated Tiago Moises, who wasn't ranked before their fight. And then in the week of the fight, Tiago Moises became the number 15 guy in the world. Islam Akashev was ranked number 14. And then he submitted Tiago and then moved up to the number 5 spot. Which is a little strange because we've had fighters like Kamara Usman and Kobe Covington who media members believed had a lot of potential to become the champion or to be a top 5 and they didn't get the opportunities to fight top fives until later on in their careers. 
And they kept beating everybody, but they were never they never jumped up in rank because of their potential. And I, I feel like that's why Islam he jumped up in the rankings a lot. And uh, you know, Makashev, so to break down both of their games, I'll, I'll go over a little bit of Dan Hooker, but I'm gonna mostly go into Islam Makashev. He's very he has very crisp striking, much um more technical than Habib. You know, his punches are straighter, he has a better stance, uh, I think better footwork. He has a really good left high kick. Really good left hand, good right uppercut, and right hook. He's very good at backing guys up. And then he one thing he does better than Habib uh, is that he'll start to exchange. And then once you believe he's going to exchange with you, he'll go in for a takedown. And basically, that's his game. He rinses and repeats it. If it's in the middle of the octagon, he actually has somewhat good timing on a takedown when a guy goes for a big punch. However, if you'll notice, whenever he takes a guy down in the center, he almost always the f- opponent almost always gets up. And some, and you know, there's been instances where he's been trapped in submissions, like in front headlock choke against Chris Wade. And I think that that fight against Chris Wade is something that Dan Hooker may be able to pull from a little bit. The fact that they kept in the center a little bit in the beginning of the fight. And that when Chris Wade got taken down, he started putting on guillotines and anaconda chokes. And they start scrambling. And Dan Hooker has very good chokes, front headlock chokes. And Hooker, I think a very... In his game, we've broken it down before, but just go over a little bit. Is He's very good at switching stance. And his first go-to thing is he will... Um, from Against a lefty fighter, a righty fighter, he'll do the same thing. He'll beat up the inside of the leg or the calf of the leg. And then the fighter, the opponent will feel like I need to go into him, right? He keeps stinging me with a kick. So I have to get closer so he stops kicking me. And then he'll jab you. And then once you get jabbed, you're like, oh, I have to go backwards because he keeps jabbing me in the face. And then you're going backwards. You get kicked in the leg. And then eventually there's a point where you'll, you'll make, the opponent will make a hard push to get closer to him, to get in the clinch, to take him down. And then he'll hit the opponent with a, a right knee to the head or a right or a um he has a very good right straight where he count on guys and a very good left hook to the head or to the body and sometimes he'll he'll double it up like he'll go left hook to the body the guy will drop his head and then left hook to the head and also he's very good at fainting so he'll faint like a he'll faint the jab the opponent will move back and then he'll eat a a low kick and basically the faint is just a half movement right like. Your jab, usually you got a, the left hand leaves your stance. You extend, you turn the punch. And sometimes opponents will notice your shoulder's coming up. So maybe you just fill your shoulder. You throw your shoulder out there. The opponent thinks, oh, he's jabbing. And then you move back and then you eat a kick from Dan Hooker. So for me, Dan's going to have the fight behind a lot of that. Because Dan Hooker has very good takedown defense. 80% takedown, 80% takedown defense. He's only been submitted, I believe, one time in his UFC career. And that was a featherweight. It wasn't a lightweight. I know that. And uh, and he's basically the only time he's ever been taken down recently in his UFC career was against um, Dustin Poirier. But Poirier already hurt him with a bunch of punches and both of them. And Hooker was getting tired. That was a five-round fight. So I don't think that's going to be a case for him. But I do think Makashev, if he gets enough chances, he's going to be able to get a takedown on Hooker. That's why I think Dan Hooker has to take the game plan he used against Paul Felder, where he's skirting outside of the octagon, and he's using his feints to pick and choose when Paul Felder's coming in. 
That's one thing I think Hooker exceeds at that people kind of forget is he's very good when he's on the back foot. And uh, he could kind of um, anticipate your weapons. He's very good at stinging you. And then you kind of like get the feeling that he's close to you, but he's not. And of course, you can make the argument that, well, but Michael Chandler got him moving backwards. Yeah, but Chandler did a great job of making Hooker feel like the right hand was what he wanted all this time. And then he switched up to the left hook. So... Hooker, that's why I think he's going to have to minimize the amount of times him and Makashev come close together. I think the feints are going to be big because Makashev never fought on point like that. To be honest, a lot of fighters don't meet a guy who could faint like like is Adesanya, like a Volkanovski, like a Dan Hooker, like a Sanhagen. So I think that's going to be key for him. And a big part of this narrative in this fight that was coming in was that Islam Makashev was originally supposed to fight Javier Dos Anjos. They've been booked like three times already now. And Makashev, you know, RDA pulls out. He got hurt. And Dan Hooker fought just back in September on UC 266 against Nasrat Hasparat. Very recent fight. Um, but the but he wasn't sparring. Like, that's the big deal is like in New Zealand and a little bit in Australia. If they don't improve you because of the COVID protocols, they won't let you spar. They won't let you train with guys. And I understood that the city kickboxing guys, they try to create a bubble of their own. So then there's no chance of anyone uh, catching COVID. But they said that the police just took it down and um, decided to shut it down for their reasons. And then Dan had to train in his garage. And you could kind of tell that he wasn't as sharp as he usually is. He had to press forward, get the takedowns, and really just be aggressive against Nasrat. But against Makashev. But the interesting thing is that so that fight was in Vegas. And Dan Hooker and his coach, Frank Hickman, who's an excellent wrestling coach, had to stay in Vegas. And they um, they trained a syndicate MMA. And I know Dan Hooker, they say he's going to... He originally, his plan was just to have Frank Hickman in his corner because no one else is going to be able to, to corner him. Like, his head coach, Eugene Behrman, wasn't going to be able to corner him and things like that. But... It, it, things like his other corner men that he usually has. But they say they're going to be able to spare some people to come out and help him out in Abu Dhabi. And Dan, I, I just feel like, and I believe he had like four weeks notice for this fight. But he's going to carry in being in possibly great shape against Makashev. But, you know, a lot of people are saying how Dan Hooker's never been submitted. He's never been... I mean, he's only been submitted once. He's never been TKO'd on the ground. Uh, lightweight, he's, he hasn't been taken down that often. I understand that thought process, right? Like, he's not like some kind of striker that always gets taken down. And he actually has like seven submission wins, Dan Hooker. Uh, so he has a lot. And he has, he's, he has, excuse me for that. Emails from corporate. We're getting back to it. He has a lot of good grappling moments. Like against Ally Quinta, he reversed a lot of takedowns, things like that. But Makhachev, I think, is a different breed when it comes to wrestling. I understand the things I just said before about Hooker not having trouble against grapplers. But I just think like that argument, I would believe in it more if he had time to get a real training camp together. Where he's sparring with the guys he knows. Where he's game planning with his head coach. I feel like this fight, he's just going to go in there. 
He's going to try to defend the takedowns as best he can. I do think he will do a better job than a lot of other people at defending the takedowns or at least getting up from the takedown. And the problem, but the problem is, is I don't think the striking, I don't think Hooker, like the striking, he's going to, it's not, I don't think it's going to be a scenario where like, oh, Hooker's defended two takedowns and he's going to knock out Makashev. I don't think that's going to happen. He, he hasn't been able to game plan. I don't think he's going to be as sharp. If this fight was, um, if this also it's three rounds, so even if Hooker finds like a pattern, he's gonna run out of time. I think it may. I, I could see that being a highly um, probable, cha- highly probable outcome of this fight. So that's why I'm kind of leaning towards Makhachev. He's a minus six hundred and fifty. I could like, uh, and also, but you never know because Makhachev he's been knocked out. He's not like Khabib. Also, Hooker. He's not going to be intimidated. Like, a lot of guys, you get, like, the, the first minute, they're like, whoa, like, I don't know what's going to come at me. I feel like Hooker's not going to have that problem. But my pick will be Islam Makashev. Plus 460 on Dan Hooker, the more experienced fighter, the more proven fighter, and maybe even the fighter with more tools in this fight. It's a little disrespectful, kind of like the Legion Young one. But I just feel like the short notice camp is going to hurt him a little bit. Also, like, you know, him and Volkanovski, I know after the fight they were celebrating, which they should. It was, you know, they had a long long journey to get to those fights in UFC 266. But he, it's going to be, um, I, I think that uh, I, I also have that in the back of my mind. But, you know, Hooker wasn't ready. He didn't know he was taking this fight. So that, that's my main concern with him going into this fight. So this next fight is my most anticipated fight of the card of maybe uh, the rest of this year where Piotr Jan, Q Music, and let's see if they allow me to put in his uh, walkout music in this podcast versus Corey Sanhagen. Both guys, amazing. Both guys, I think um, there's a lot to take from and I do think that both of them, there are... Very good path. They had there's very viable paths for them to win this fight. Uh, so let's get into the into it a little bit. Piorian is the number one contender at bantamweight. He is the former UFC champion. He is fifteen and two. He's five. He's five seven. He trains out Tiger Muay Thai, but I believe he's training at home in Serbia. He is a master of sport in boxing. Uh, court, and we've gone over uh, Piorian a couple times on the show. Uh, Corey Sanhagen, who we've also gone over in this show, is 14-3. and three. He is 5'11". He has a 70-inch reach, opposed to Piotr Jan's 67-inch reach. And he trains out Elevation Fight Team in Denver, Colorado. Get into it. A little bit of reminders. It's been a little while since we've talked about either one of these guys. Piotr Jan and Corey Sanhagen both like to switch stance. Sanhagen more so. Sanhagen will use stance switching almost as a feint. Like he'll be stepping in, he'll be acting like he's stepping into a punch, but he's not. He's just trying to get the guy to react. Proryan will you could tell, like he'll stand orthodox, which is you know, righty stance, and then he'll switch. He'll stand southpaw. Lefty stance. Once in a while he will have combinations where he'll mix them. Like, he'll throw, his big combination is he'll throw a straight right into a left punch, into a left high kick. And he's a big fan of, like, his left kick is very good. 
um, from the southpaw position. He has a lot of setups. Like he'll do, um, he'll stand southpaw, and then he'll throw like a a side kick, like a oblique kick or a push kick to the knee, and then he'll if the guy blocks it, then he'll throw up a left high kick. He'll do a lot of things like that. It's kind of like the most you get out of his stand switching. He does have, um, in my opinion, he has good defensive wrestling. Very good. Again, he showed against Aljamain Sterling. And then he, um, his top controls, you know, pretty good. Like, from the lower half of the UFC roster. You know, he fought Douglas Silva to Andrade. And that's something that will be very big note between the two of them is the level of competition. And so Piotr... But his big thing with his style is hands up. Whenever somebody punches, just cover up. And then he'll... It's almost like he gets guys tired just pushing them back. And forcing them to make huge mistakes. Like he will stand on the edge of your foot. And then guys will lash out with big punches. Um, big kicks. Big uh, takedown attempts. And you kind of saw that in the Aljamain Sterling fight towards the end. Oh, and one thing to note also is this is the first title fight where both men are coming off losses. I know people will, but Piotr Jan was winning that fight. It's a loss. It's an L on his record. That's just how it's going to be. Corey Sanhagen lost to TJ Dillashaw by split decision. Yes, some people believe he won, but it's still it is a loss. Um, but both guys are very good nonetheless. And this is a fight I've been anticipating for a long time. Uh, even before this was set up, I thought these two match up very interestingly. So, and Piotr has very good, um, you know, I'm sure he has, like, um, very good wrestling basics. He trains with Frank Hickman, who I've always thought very highly of, at Tiger Muay Thai, uh, their wrestling coach. And he, his signature takedowns, like, he has some um, very good back trips. So, he'll be on the back, and then he'll trip. Or he has very good, um, with Aljamain Sterling, he showed a very good job of catching the kick. I don't know if that's going to work against Sanhagen, because Sanhagen's a lot better of a kicker than Aljamain Sterling. Also... Purion's fought guys who kick and he's never caught their leg before like that. And Aljo, like, he has good striking, but uh, it's mainly to carry to the takedown. So it'll be interesting to see how that falls into place. But the area I see for Purion being the biggest is his clinch. He has a very good clinch game, very good at um, threatening multiple things, right? He threatens the underhook, then he has um, a takedown option possibly. He threat or trip. He's very good at tripping people, like kind of like Matt Brown, and he has very good elbows. If you start to dig in underhooks, he'll elbow you. So there's multiple ways, multiple forms of offense he has in the clinch, and that's basically his style. Is like he gets you tired just anticipating things, right? So a lot of the times he gets guys pushing back, but I truly believe he's never fought an opponent who. One, his opponents that he has fought aren't the greatest, like, by any standard. And uh, Corey Sanhagen has fought very good guys, even though he's lost a couple, two fights. You know, Purion's only fought one of them. And also, Sanhagen has, even though some people will be like, oh, uh, you know, Sanhagen hasn't fought that many good guys either. You know, Marlon Marais, he hasn't won. Uh, Frank Edgar, you know, he's old. But those wins are a lot better than Uriah Faber who hadn't fought in how long, only win was against Ricky Simone for like the last three years, and then Jose Aldo, who hadn't had a win in the division yet in a five-round fight. So Sanhagen, I do think there's a lot of things he could do to offset 
Torreon. I, I do believe that there's a debate between the two happening. Who's better on the ground? Sanhagen, a lot of Pyongyang fans are believing Yan is going to submit Sanhagen, even though Yan has only had one submission win his entire career. Also, Corey Sanhagen has fought like really good submission artists like Javier Sanza, who has like four, like ten submission wins. Iria Contra, who has fourteen submission wins. Do I think Yan could thwart him on the ground and just spend time there and ride him? Yeah, I do think so, but. I don't think he's going to submit him. So Sanhagen, he likes to be fleet of foot, what I like to say. He'll be on his toes, and he'll act like he's going to come in. He'll throw a couple strikes. He's going to pretend. He's going to faint like he's going to come in. The opponent throws a strike, and then he throws one countering that strike. So he's excellent at that. He's very good at um, switching stance mid-strike. Like, he'll do, like, a jab. He'll throw the right hand, switch to his lefty stance, and then he'll throw, like, a left knee to the body. Or he'll do a good job of jabbing it and cutting through the guard of an opponent. Like the opponent has his hands up and then the jab will go in between the hands. Which could play a big fart against Jan. Because I always believe Piotr Jan, you gotta expose the fact that he always just uses that guard whenever he's getting hit. And he keeps moving forward. So the momentum will be doubled if you're Corey Sanhagen. Also, the big part is Sanhagen's very good... The biggest factor for me is the knees to the head to the body and also the the body work of Corey Sanhagen. He beats up the body so well. And I am extremely surprised how nobody in the MMA community has even discussed that as being a possibility of him doing. Because Jan, you watch the Aldo fight. Aldo does a great job of beating up the body with the left hook and then hitting him with the right leg kick. And... Uh, Jan has shown a couple fights now that he struggles with guys with leg kicks and especially, especially he will struggle with guys who will mix up the boxing with the kicks, with his the leg kicks. And you'll see that from guys like Jim Rivera and even Aljamain Sterling, who's not necessarily known for being such a terrific kickboxer who puts things together. And then if you start mixing up the hands with the feet, he'll start to back up and he's not nearly as good backing up as he is moving forward. And Corey, he mixes up going in the body really well with his left hook, with the body kicks. He does a really good job of mixing up the punches with knees to the body, into the tie clinch, going into the tie clinch, punching the body, punching the body into a leg kick. He's very good at that. He's going to need that because one thing I always think is Piotrion's 100% his best aspect of his game, in my opinion, is um, his ability to adjust. He saw that Jose Aldo kept hitting him to the body and kicking his right left leg. So he switched stance. And when he tried Aldo tried to punch the body again, he knew he was going to punch the body. And then Jan caught him with a big right hand while he was punching the body. And also, the, the he was able to protect his left leg better when he switched stance. And, but... Where are the answers for Sanhagen if that were to happen? If Jan was to switch Sanhagen's very good at switching stance himself. And um, I think it's going to be fascinating because Jan, basically his whole defense is just covering his hands up. And Sanhagen, he like feasts on the idea that a guy is just covering up. Um, for me, I think... But the biggest factor, the two biggest factors going against Corey Sanhagen is that you know, Perion was originally scheduled to fight Aljamain Sterling in a rematch. And Aljamain Sterling pulled out like f- 
four weeks ago. And Corey Sanhagen jumped in four weeks ago. You know, Rob Fawn was had COVID. TJ Dillashaw was injured. He would have been the number one choice probably. But uh, so Sanhagen stepped in. And good on him. Some people are saying he's being gifted an opportunity. No. If you are ready for the opportunity, you are the right guy. Always. 100%. And so... Uh, and he's a big guy for this division. He's always had really good cardio. But I feel like Jan, if he gets going and if Sanhagen doesn't get his respect or Sanhagen doesn't have new, more tricks to pull out beyond 15 minutes of a fight, then I think uh, Jan's 100% he's going to win. Corey's going to have to surprise him every um, round with something different. And uh, in a, you know he hasn't been getting ready. I know that he's been claiming that he's been getting ready. I don't know if he has. Uh, because, you know, you get, you know, no fighter's gonna come out and be like, "Yeah, I'm severely unprepared. Um, I haven't fought. I haven't been training at all. You know, if this thing goes out five first five minutes, I'm pretty much done." No one's ever gonna say that. They're gonna say they've been getting ready. But so and. The big thing for me is that Jan, I feel like he's going to explode at a certain point when Sanhagen starts to feel some success, working the body, closing through the guard, hitting the legs. And then Jan's going to hit him with like a big shot, like in the first or second round. And then Corey's just going to, he's going to have to like try to recover. Like I feel like this is basically going to be the whole fight. Um, and... Uh, that's like my biggest aspect. I'm looking at also the takedowns. Like I don't think Piotr Jan is gonna shoot takedowns like TJ or Aljamie Sterling, where it's like a double leg or a single leg. I think he's gonna try to get in the clinch. He's gonna try to elbow him, and he's gonna try to use his trips. But I don't think Jan is gonna have as much success with those takedowns, those trips that he did against Aljamie as he did against Corey Sanhagen, because actually Sanhagen has a 64% takedown defense, which is okay. Um, you know, he's fought really good guys who like to wrestle sometimes. But Aljamain Sterling actually has a significantly lower form of takedown defense compared to Corey Sanhagen. Like, Sanhagen has a 66% takedown defense. And Aljamain Sterling has a um, 41% takedown defense. So, they're, they're very different, actually, <laughs> when it comes to takedowns. So, things, X-Factors... I already talked about it. The takedowns of Piotr, the possible takedowns of Piotr Jan, and the um, the faint, and then there's a couple other things like um, Corey. What I mean by he has to have something ready for every round, and I know the mindset he brings is that twenty five minutes. It's gonna be twenty. It's gonna possibly be a twenty five minute war, but I'm gonna find a way to win this war. He's not gonna be looking for a highlight reel knockout. And I do believe that is the right approach to it. But when he fought TJ, he started, like, throwing out, like, first round. He already threw, like, a flying knee. He tried to, like, submit him in the first round. And then the third second, third round, he tried to do, like, a spin wheel kick. So I think he has to keep those things when he feels like there's a time to do it. Do not just throw those out because you're trying to, um you know, impress everybody. Use the tools that you see. And I do believe since Piotr Jan moves forward so much, there will be plenty of um, openings, like the kicks to the body, the front kick to the body, the oblique kick to the knee, the leg kicks, period, the jab, the hooks to the body, things like that. And also, I think uh, Sanhagen, a way to conserve that, to keep the pressure of Piotr Jan off of him, 
I think he'll have to be use his feints. Even Aljamain Sterling, who is not known for being a heavy fainter, when he was changing levels, fainting, he was keeping Piotr Jan guessing. And Piotr Jan, the only way he had to disengage all that was move back. And he's not nearly as good moving back as he is moving forward. And Sanhagen, I think that if he faints and he gets Piotr to respect that something's coming, he could buy him some time. And if he bides some time, that is less time of Piotr Jan moving forward. And then another X Factor going into this fight is, like I said, the clinch game of Piotr Jan slash wrestling, the fainting of Sanhagen, the body work of Sanhagen. Also, the there's a big difference when it comes to opponents. And I know Piotr Jan's fans, they like to argue. And I'm a Piotr Jan fan, okay? But I know this is an aspect that... Uh, a guy who I'm a fan of does not ex- essentially exceed in. His level of competition, like, it's... And some people have kind of glossed over this a little bit. Like, his first fight in the UFC was Toroshi, Toroto Ishihara, who lost to Artem Lobov. He wasn't a big name, but that's fine. UFC debut, whatever. Then he fought... His first big one was Douglas Silva, then Andrade. But Andrade was always known as being always just a powerful guy. And he wasn't even really that high ranked. Then he fights John Dodson. Which he got rocked in that fight, and then he got taken down two times. And, um, you know, Dodson, he, he was like so irrelevant when it came to the Bantamweight division in the UFC. Very good flyweight, but Bantamweight, he wasn't really that relevant. Then he fights Jimmy Rivera, where he gets outstruck for four minutes of the five minute round of each round, and he hits him with a big shot, and then basically he wins the round just because he landed one big shot. And that fight really showed, like, if you could box and you could leg kick him, that is the way to go. And even plus adding on the body work because Piotr Jan is so durable. And then you get into the Jose Aldo fight. Aldo's coming off of two losses. He hasn't won, like, I want to say, like, a year. He didn't win it in a year. And um, he hadn't won in that division at all. It was a five-round fight. And then, of course, you can make the argument, oh, but Jose Aldo has not lost since that fight. But also, you can argue that Jose Aldo has taken a significantly lower level of competition since that fight with Piotr Jan. And even then, like, the fight was kind of close in the beginning. I actually had Aldo up, like, it was maybe like uh, Piotr Jan won one round and then Aldo won two into, into the fourth round. And then the, the Aljamain Sterling fight, he looked amazing. Probably his best performance against the best guy, but it was a disqualification. And I do think there's still some ways that Sanhagen could pull from that fight. So getting into the picks, into the betting odds. I do think that um, Kyodoryan should be the favorite. He is minus 235. And then, you know what? I just listed a bunch down about how Corey Sanhagen should win, could win, things like that. But I 100% think that even though he claims he was getting ready for this fight, Getting ready, even then, it's a lot to get ready for a guy like Piotr. And then plus, Sanhagen's coming off a loss against TJ, where I do feel like Piotr could take a lot from that fight. You know, I think he's going to take him down. I don't. I think Sanhagen's going to throw up submissions. I don't think Jan's going to submit him. 100% I don't think that. But I think he's going to kill some time. He's going to ride it out. He's going to hit him with elbows in the clinch. 
And I think he's going to hit him with like a couple big shots. And then Sanhagen's just going to like be in awe of the power. And just try to recover the whole time. But plus 190 on Corey Sanhagen is a lot to pass up on. Especially since I just said he has the body work. He is, in my opinion, the he's fought way better competition. And he kind of has that style to give make Piotr's, um explosive. But yet simple. But extremely basic and very good, like, not basic, like, in a bad way, but, like, meat and potatoes type of style. And I think Corey could really make Piotr fight out of his box by beating up the body and the legs. If he does, if he beats up the body and the legs consistently without getting hurt, this becomes Corey Sanhagen's fight to lose. And it's really fascinating. Also, like, um, Sanhagen, one thing's kind of like, a, you know, Piotr Jan's, Durable against guys who are not known for knocking people out. But Corey Sanhagen like, has a very... Actually, he's kind of like underratedly durable. And, of course, you go look at... Oh, but the Aljamie Sterling fight, he got submitted. Yeah, I don't see Piotr Jan jumping on his back and like tapping him out like in the first minute. I think that the Dillashaw fight for Jan would be a little bit more of a viable way to win. But also, like Sanhagen did a really good job of... You know, like, there was a lot... Against TJ and him, there was a lot of fainting back and forth. And a lot of, like, TJ switching stance over and over again. But Piotr, he will switch stance and he will faint, but not on that level. And I... Like, Sanhagen in the beginning, in the middle of that fight, he did a great job of, like, reading Dillashaw. And then TJ had to bring out his D1 wrestling skills. And Piotr does not have that in his back pocket. That's why I think, like, he's going to be, and at least in the beginning of the fight, open to the counter shots. But I feel like Piotr Jan is just going to... There's a huge chance it's possibly going to end up like a usual Piotr Jan fight where he's moving forward and then, um, you know, he's eating punches in the beginning and then, like, he hits, like, a big shot or, like, or, like, Sanhagen's having trouble timing him later on or reading him later on. That's why I think there's a huge possibility. But Corey Sanhagen has a lot of ways to win this fight. And to me, if he's just on point, the, the if he's on point... And attacks the targets that are open to him. It is his fight to lose. He can 100% win this thing. That is my take on this fight. So moving on to the main event. Jan Blahovich versus Glover Teixeira. Amazing fight. A, a very deserving fight. A story of two guys who a lot of people believe weren't going to be amounts to this. Like Glover, he fought for the title. But after he fought for the title, he got knocked out by Rumble. Then he got knocked out by Gustafsson. And even some of the other fights he struggled. But now he's worked his way back up. And it's amazing to see at 42 years old. Jan Bohovich very similar. Started his UFC career 1-4. But then he started using his smarts more. He became a more well-rounded fighter. And he's resulted in many finishes in his last couple fights. You know, finishing Luke Rocco, Dominic Reyes, Corey Anderson. And Glover Teixeira, the big tale for him is that He's brought back his incredible top game, his incredible wrestling and jiu-jitsu game. I felt like after he lost to John Jones, he kind of fell in love with his boxing a little bit. And the key to this fight for Glover, you know, Jan Bohovic is a minus 305 favorite, and Glover share is a plus 240. And uh, Jan Bohovic, very good everywhere. Good jiu-jitsu, good striking in the clinch. Good um count and actually he has a very underrated counter striking ability. Like he'll almost like open like he'll open you and 
tell you to come forward, and that's when he catches you. And I 100% think that's what he's going to do against Teixeira. Uh, and Glover, you know, his style, we've broken him down before. Very good at slipping, coming over the top of right hands, left hooks to the body. He almost has like a Mike Tyson-esque style to MMA. He himself has a very underrated kicking ability. Very, very good wrestler. Um, despite not having a wrestling background. Very good jiu-jitsu submission game and ground the pound is spectacular. Jan Bohovic has good um, jiu-jitsu too, but off his back, he's not the greatest. Gover Teixeira is good off his, like, good at getting up from his back. Good at reversing. Not really a submission threat. Uh, so, it's fine. And Glover, like, he is on, like, an incredible win streak. I think he's, like, on a... One, two, three, four, five, five, four, five, one streak, something like that. Let me check, actually. I'm interested to see myself. And then Jan Bohovic is on a four, five, one streak. So go over to Shara. This is why it's so exciting that I haven't gotten into the, the tail of the tape or anything. Teixeira is on a 5-5 win streak. His last loss was to Corey Anderson. So Jan Bohovic is light heavyweight champion. He is 28-8. He is 6-2 of a 78-inch reach. He trains out of um, Poland, his home. And Gover Teixeira is the number one contender, light heavyweight, 205 pounds division. He is 6-2, so same height, with a 76-inch reach. So there will be a slight reach disadvantage for him. He trains out of ATT in, Danbury, in his own gym in Danbury, Connecticut. So the big things that calls to me is Gover Teixeira has been uppercutted a couple times in his fights. Like his Gustafson loss, his um, Anthony Rumble Johnson loss. And that's probably because you know he likes to use his head, bob and weave, and he likes to go for takedown. So sometimes his head is open in a, on that centerline channel sometimes. And Jan Bohovic, you got to think he's going to be looking for that. He he is very good boxing himself, Jan Bohovic, but it's better as like a kickboxer when he pairs with his his kicks. I think he's going to try to fight from the outside, try to kick Glover to Shara's calf, and get Glover to Shara to rush in and get caught with a counter shot. Either Russian trying to take Jan Bohovic down, or Russian trying to punch him. For me, Glover to Shara needs to get Jan Bohovic backing up, take the center of the cage, and try to use your kicks yourself. Like you're a very good kicker. Uh, and try to mix in the take the punches into the takedown. Like <clears throat> Teixeira is really at his best when he fakes the takedown and he comes over the top of a right hand or a left hook to the body. He uh John Bohovic has a very good job and so is Glover Teixeira. But for me, the things that stand out is Jan Bohovic's IQ. He's very good at not rushing things. And he I think he's gonna try to beat him up at range and like I said, try to catch Glover Teixeira coming in. I think because a lot over to Shara over this win streak, he has had a couple of times where he's been rocked. Like the Tiago Santos fight is a very good example, but Santos ended up rushing it, and he ended up getting taken down and submitted and ground and pounded. Uh, Jan Bohovic, I don't think is going to have that. He's going to try to catch Gover coming in to try to make the most of his opportunities. But the Gover to Shara, why I see him as a very live underdog. And this whole card is full of live underdogs. Is because his takedown game is very good. And Jan Bohovic has not fought a guy who is good at takedowns as Glover Teixeira in this whole win streak. 
Some people are going to argue Luke Rockhold, but Rockhold, he has like one type of takedown. Teixeira has good single legs, double legs, and he pairs them off very well with punches. And Blahovich, uh, he, in the past, in, and it hasn't been proven wrong yet, so there's still a possibility this happening. He has gotten very tired from grappling. Even like the Adesanya fight where he was on top of Adesanya in Mel, controlling Adesanya. He got so tired. And go over to Shara if he's on top of you, man, and he is punching you in the face, threatening submissions, you are going to get tired. Even like getting Jan Bohovic down once, I think is going to do wonders for Glover. So I think that if Glover could get him down once and stay in contact and ride it out, try to get some ground and pound and just get close to him. I think that could, that's Glover to Shara. He's that's Glover to Shara all day, because Jan Bohovic he's got incredible power, but he will slow down as the fight goes on. And really, that comes. That's kind of like the whole tale of the fight. Is like can Glover to Shara get him down? And that's why I kind of look at like Jan. He's tried to submit people off his back, and very rarely does he do so. Like Corey Anderson, the first fight took him down, rode him out, decision. Alexander Gustafson, same thing. And Teixeira, but he cannot get caught. Like, I'm afraid for his sake that he's going to try to go for a takedown and get caught off a big punch. That That would be my fear. And But if he gets him down, avoiding huge shots, oh man, he's going to he's gonna ground and pound him like crazy. And like Jan, like I said, like he got tired in a grappling fight and certain grappling changes where he was the one controlling. Could you imagine if he's being controlled now? That's what I'm looking at in this fight. But I question, you know, go over to Shara. Even though he's very durable, he has been rocked before. And I do believe Jan Bohovic is a smarter fighter than the people Glover to Shara perhaps has encountered in the past. But Glover to Shara is a significantly more well-rounded fighter uh, and light heavyweight. And also a much better wrestler than all the guys Jan Bohovic has fought. That's why I think this fight is intriguing and fascinating. You know, I, I lean towards John Bohovich via TKO, but who cares about playing it safe? Glover Teixeira is a plus 240 underdog, while Jan Bohovich is a minus 305 favorite. And it, I think it's a huge if if he could defend the takedowns against um, Jan. And even if Jan does defend them, he's going to get tired. I think that's a huge aspect of this fight that people are discounting heavily. So um, that's the that's what I think of the fight, guys. Don't worry, you won't be waiting a very long time for my next podcast because the next one is going to be UFC 268, Covington, Usman, Nama Yunus, Zhang, Chandler, Gagey, all the fun, New York City, Madison Square Garden. It's going to be great. But let's focus on this fight coming this Saturday. I'm so excited. I'm canceling all my plans. I'm just watching that fight. And you should too. It's on ESPN. You just need an ESPN subscription. No, I am not sponsored by them, sadly, unfortunately. But all you need is a subscription. You don't even need to pay for it. Uh, Pay for the pay-per-view. No $70 charge this time. (coughs) Excuse me. And there's great fights with huge names on this card. Abu Dhabi, Yas Island. It's going to be amazing. Thank you guys for listening. And hope you stay safe. And happy Halloween. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you were listening to, please subscribe to Fans Assemble. 
And if you can, please give us a rating. Do it for the audio world. They need you.